Hi there, a quick note before we begin the episode. Did you know that Atlas Lingue has its own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life. In this audiobook, we share additional exclusive commentaries on each episode with brand new insights and examples on the subject that we can't stop thinking about, how humans translate everything that comes their way. Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Salut! Je parle français, anglais, espagnol. Hola, hablo espanol, inglés y portugués. Hi, I speak English and French. Ciao, parlo italiano e inglese. It's always a nice feeling when I get to be a total nerd and revel in a beautiful literary translation. I remember this one time I read a Portuguese translation of a classic Mexican short story anthology by Juan Rulfo, originally titled El Llano en Llamas. In English, it translates to The Burning Plain, and if the translator to Portuguese had wanted to keep the meaning of the words intact, the title might have used the word planicie for plain. But in fact, the resulting translation of the title is O Chão em Chamas, or The Burning Ground. I've always loved this example of title translation because there was a deliberate choice to prioritize sound, specifically the alliteration between the two key words, over their precise meaning. And this honestly makes sense for this series of short stories that showcases the way that rural Mexicans spoke in the early 20th century. But hey, if so much time and thought is spent in just the title, the challenge of translating a whole book can often be overwhelming, to say the least. Welcome to Atlas Lingue, a show where we talk about languages, about the joyful, the challenging, and the joyfully challenging aspects of everyday communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and today we're going to talk about translating literature. I've decided to get to the bottom of what makes a good literary translation. And in order to do that, I'll call on someone with experience at the most essential step of the process, the translating itself. His name is Sean Cotter. He's a professor of literature and literary translation at the University of Texas, Dallas, 
and a translator of Romanian literature. Here's what he said when asked if a faithful translation exists. You know, there's this famous story by Borges um, called Pierre Menard. He describes the work of a fictional writer named Pierre Menard who attempts to rewrite Don Quixote. He wants to write a sentence in Spanish over and over again until it's perfect. And when it's perfect, it will be the same thing as it was in Cervantes' version. And uh, part of the comedy of the story comes from comparing what it meant for Cervantes to write something like uh, Truth, uh, whose mother is history. And to write that in the 17th century is simply kind of a banal rhetorical feature, but to write that in the 20th century is a brazenly anti-foundational pragmatist approach. Borges is, is one of these thinkers who acknowledges that identical things are impossible. And so really, you don't need to be identical in order to do a good translation. So what does this novel teach us about translating literature? I think a lot of people still think things can't be translated. I think the reason they think things can't be translated is because there is no absolutely identical version of um, the text. So literary translation, like many other forms of translation, is not about exactly replicating what is being said, as we saw in the example at the beginning. According to Jorge Luis Borges, exact replication isn't possible in the first place, even in the same language, because the meanings of words change with time, and according to who reads them. But if an exact replica isn't possible, then what are we left with? What makes a good translation? The most interesting translations are the ones that show the work of the translator, that show the interpretive process, and that make these bridges between things that are fundamentally different from each other. The one thing I try to explain is that uh, translation is not reproduction of the same. Translation is the comparison of the different. Translation is a kind of an art of dissonance in that way. An art of dissonance? Ooh, I like this. We're just starting and we're getting all poetic. Please, say more. If you think about going to a concert with a bunch of friends, then you hear this uh, amazing music that is produced by these musicians on their, you know, guitars, drums, synths, whatever they've got going here. And uh, you go back and you're back to your house and your friends, you're sitting around, um, maybe drinking some wine, whatever, and you're discussing this music, but that's not translation. A translation hasn't happened yet. Just because you're bringing it into your mind doesn't mean that you've translated it. And the next morning, perhaps you wake up first and you're kind of walking over the bodies in your uh, too small apartment. You're picking up the bottles and uh, emptying out the ashes and trying not to clink them together. But as you walk past the piano, you can't help but remember some of the tunes you heard the night before. And then you try to pluck out one of the melodies on the piano while you're still holding the bottles in your other hand. And at that moment, when you're trying to play in five instruments, now you've begun to translate. It sounds like, as with most artistic work, translating literature isn't about getting every technical detail exactly right. It's much more about transmitting a meaning in a different way. So that's a much better example of what translation is like. You're doing something, you're trying to play the same melody, but you're doing it on a completely different instrument. 
But I wonder, in this metaphor, you're trying to play five different instruments on one simple piano. What do all those other instruments represent? Are we bound to lose all those sounds? All that nuance? I think the perfect translator would have infinite knowledge of the original and all the books ever written in that language and all the books that those authors had ever read in whatever language those authors had read them. And then all a perfect knowledge as well of English and all the books that were written in English and all the books that anyone who had written in English had read. I think that's a, that would be one of the few reasonable standards for the level of knowledge that a translator needs. Yeah, sounds pretty reasonable to me. So you're not only translating a work from one language to a different one, you're also compacting a whole bunch of background information and nuanced meaning into the space of a blank page. These nuances being like the guitar, bass, and drums that you try to convey on your piano at home. And what happens as soon as you start to pluck out those notes on the piano? People wake up and they start to complain and yell at you because they all have headaches. And what you're doing is nowhere near as transformative and engaging and transcendent as the music you heard the night before. But that's the life of translation. No easy feat. And like this person's friends, readers can be a tough crowd. But readers are not a translator's only concern. A healthy relationship with the author is especially important when it comes to accessing the meaning of the original. I've translated living authors and dead authors, and that process is obviously very different because you can't ask the dead authors questions. I mean, you can ask them, they just don't respond so quickly. I would imagine. I can't say I haven't dreamt of getting responses from some of my favorite authors who are long gone, though that would probably be pretty spooky too. But going back to the original question, how does this author-translator relationship help produce the best translation possible? Questions I ask living authors tend to be um, kind of my last resort, and this is common for many translators, that you have a list of things that you've, you can't figure out that you've looked up on the web, you've looked up in your dictionaries, you've asked your friends and you still can't figure them out. And typically these are things that have to do with the content of the work that are kind of thematic. So there was a passage in Richard Cattarescu's Orbitor. These two sisters went to a fair and I couldn't tell what they were doing, but the Romanian says they done um, so they gave themselves to the chains. I'm like, well, what the heck is that? And I knew that chains were an important thematic element to the book, that there are many chains, there are many kinds of links and bonds and all these things. And so this was an important word that I wanted to preserve, but I just didn't know what it meant. So I, you know, I couldn't make something up. So then I wrote, that was one of the queries I had for Cattarescu. And the beautiful thing about doing this over email is we can send pictures back and forth to each other. So he said, well, this is a kind of a ride. He says it spins around. And so I sent him a picture of a teacup ride. And he wrote back, he said, no, 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 Sean, this is something much more dangerous. And eventually uh, it turned out to be this ride where you have a stem in the middle and then kind of a mushroom cap on the top. And these chairs hang down and you get in the chairs and the, the top spins and the chairs kind of eventually work themselves out and through centrifugal force. 
And fortunately, there's an English name for this, which is the chain carousel. So by sending these pictures back and forth, I was able to get exactly the words that fit the themes of the book I was trying to preserve. Interesting. So when studying the background and having a thorough knowledge of the source language doesn't suffice, translators can turn to a more common language, pictures. But of course, they can't put that into the final product. Everything has to somehow find its way into words or else be forever lost in translation. But even with all this, is it enough to understand the source material? The major impediment for translators, one of the greatest translators of the 20th century, Michael Henry Heim, referred to knowledge of the original language or knowledge of the original text as a technical detail, that really the problem is English. Okay, wait, this feels critical. How is English the problem? The introductory classes is on marshalling in English or somehow creating a language that's going to represent the things that you see happening. There are 10,000 things happening in the original. You get to do 10 in English. How do you choose those and how do you do those things exceptionally well? That's the beginning idea or the beginning process. So the most important thing isn't, after all, understanding all of the nuance in the original. It's knowing how to recreate that nuance in the target language. After all, like Sean said, it's not just about exact replication. It's about creating something new. I still feel like I need another perspective on this, not just from inside the artistic mind of the translator, but on the ins and outs of how good translations get published and how bad ones slip through the cracks. So let's ask a publisher. So what we seek, and this is really frustrating for translators who are authors and artists in their own right, is total invisibility. So, you know, the best translation is the one you do not notice. This is Francois von Herter, founder and publisher of Bitter Lemon Press which specializes in publishing translated books. We're not keen on translators who are overly loyal to the original text, who let some of the syntax come through in the descriptive passages or, or just stay too close. The best translations are freer than that. They always respect you know, the rhythm, the humor, the sense of place but not by being too slavish, because that always comes through when, when you read it. It's sort of like a window pane. If you see the window pane, it's because there's a blemish. You want it to be really transparent and allow the viewer to see the view and not the translation. We seek something or work that's smooth enough to pass that test. You want the reader at the end to say, that was a beautifully written book. I didn't even know it was a translation until someone told me. That's the dream situation when, when that happened. Ooh, let me write that down. Things to keep. Rhythm, humor, sense of place. It doesn't surprise me that Francois is hitting at something similar to what Sean said, that translating is not about replicating the original to a T. But if I'm reading an international work... Don't I still want to feel that it comes from a culture other than mine? 
there is a school of translation that says, I want some of that to appear, to show through some of the skeleton that's underneath uh, so that people will have a more exotic experience. We don't believe in that. I think it really should be transparent and free. Again, literary translation seems more like an artistic process than a technical one. If it's about creating an immersive experience for the reader, and not just an accurate transmission of information, then the translator should have a lot more creative freedom. Still though, there's a difference between taking creative license and completely failing to respect the original. But Francois says that most errors in translation aren't gross misreadings of tone. There are many levels of editing that prevent that, but rather smaller technical details due to gaps in the translator's vocabulary. There are areas, because again, we do a lot of crime, you know, translators know nothing about weapons. So that's usually chock full of mistakes. They don't know the difference between a revolver and a pistol. They're never comfortable with pillow talk, let's say. That's just not, translators tend not to be comfortable with that. They have usually learned their trade with literary text, but not by having boys or girlfriends in Paris. And then sometimes just obvious mistranslations because they didn't get. Slang is very difficult in all languages. Translations go through many phases of editing and get passed along to many desks. The publishers, copy editor, proofreader, back and forth with the translator. And then finally you have a text that you can print. Rarely, you'd have to go all the way back to the author and say, what did you mean if no one gets it on the chain? But between the copy editor and myself, the translator, we usually do not try not to bother the author too much. They usually know just enough English to be a nuisance, but not enough to add value. Once again, knowledge of the target language, in this case English, is just as important, if not more important, than understanding the intent of the original. But in that case, when it comes to the words themselves, it would seem like the final product is just as much the genius of the translator as it is the original author. Which makes me wonder, what rights do literary translators have compared to authors? In Iran back in 2008, there were at one point as many as 16 different translations of Harry Potter on the market. And with a book as sought after as that one, that means that the translations raced to the shelf are often subpar quality. One translator called it a catastrophe. Here's what Cameron Strocker says about it. He's a law professor and media and entertainment lawyer. There are countries where illegal copies are made because there's really no remedy for the author if the translator has no connection to any other country. The translator is Iranian, the translator lives in Tehran, the translator never comes to London, the publishing company is in Tehran, the publishing company has no assets in London. What are you going to do? You can't sue them in Tehran because they're not a member of the Berne Convention. So yeah, you're stuck with unlawful translations floating around. This was because Iran had yet to sign the Berne Convention. It permits citizens of countries that have signed the Berne Convention to bring lawsuits in other countries where their works are infringed 
um, if those other countries are also signatories to the Berne Convention. So without the convention, a copyright held by a U.S. citizen would have nothing to do with an infringement made in another country. But with the Berne Convention, everyone who signs has to respect the copyright law of each other. So even on a legal basis, the majority of countries recognize that translators are actually artists, just like writers, and they deserve to be fairly paid for their work. And they have the right to make the translation, and they have the right to receive money for the translation. So in that respect, they're exactly like the copyright holder. So the translator has every right to be compensated for their work. But they may not be protected from someone stealing their work and claiming it as their own. Because according to the law, it's not their own. It's the original author's. Under the Copyright Act, a translation is considered a derivative work. So it's considered part of the original copyright. And the uh, rights to the translation are technically still held by the copyright holder unless the copyright holder has assigned them or granted them with a license or a contract to um, to a translator or to another person. So how can a translator protect their work? You want the exclusive right. So you should be on the lookout and use those magic words uh, anytime you have a contract to translate somebody else's work. We've all heard of abracadabra and open sesame. Now introducing exclusive license. And luckily, thanks to the Berne Convention, these rights can follow translations across borders. For those who have signed, that is. Unlike Iran, which still hasn't. Until they do, expect Harry Potter's abound. Translation isn't art, as much as original writing is, and one that's not just important to literary buffs or fans of a particular franchise. It matters for the cultural integrity of a nation. Many countries, cultural institutions of many countries, are keen to support their literature and to see it published in English. Um, you know, the French, the Argentines, even Uruguay, uh, the Japanese. They want their literature to be known abroad. And, and basically, English is the language of the empire. It is the sort of lingua franca of the world. And so being able to get their authors out there in English is important to them. But this power goes both ways, from the local culture to a more dominant language like English and vice versa. When these cultures come together, is it simply a question where one culture wins? Or is there something new that's created? Is there something important in the dynamism of this cultural interaction? That something important is, is happening in the interaction of cultures that doesn't erase the, the weaker culture, but actually makes it into something much more interesting and it transforms the stronger culture. Translation isn't about drowning out the original in favor of the target language. It's about where cultures overlap and something new can be born. Being in translation is far from being the least powerful part of, of culture. It's actually the most interesting, most powerful, most um, energetic place that's happening in a culture. And for that, I think it's worth getting right.
Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, catch up with our previous episodes. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to our guests Sean Cotter, Francois von Herter, and Cameron Stracker. Production and theme by Studio Ochenta. Sound design by Chiara Santella. Senior producer Glitzia Sala. Assistant producers Haley Choi, Leo Ibanez, Leia Zipstein, and Clark Marchese. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ochenta Podcasts. Our podcast is available on Castbox, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country. And we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.